I appreciate Danny stepping up here on short notice and pinch hitting for us tonight and leading singing. He asked me if there were any songs that he should pick, you know, kind of what the lesson was about. And I said, well, you know, we're going through this book, His Life, so everything is about Jesus, so just pick songs about Jesus. And he did those last two, obviously. But I did say the lesson specifically is about the preexistence of Jesus. So if you find any songs about preexistence, go ahead and, and sing those. And uh, you notice there weren't any of those. Um, and of course, when I think about it, I don't know of any hymns just right off the top of my head that uh, talk about Jesus' preexistence. And that's because this is a, a topic that we just don't think about or, or talk about too much because it's somewhat obscure. There's an old story about a fellow who'd gone to seminary and he was preparing to graduate and so he was up for his comprehensive examination an oral examination there in front of a, a panel of his professors and they asked him about the doctrine of the trinity asked him to explain that he said well the father mumble mumble and the son mumble mumble and the holy spirit mumble mumble the three, mumble, 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 one. And his professor asked a question. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Could you repeat that? Yes, sir, certainly. The father, the son, the Holy Spirit, and the three, are one. Finally, the professor said, I still can't understand you. You're not supposed to, it's a mystery. course that never happened <laughs> but it's pretty close to the truth when it comes to explaining the pre-existence of Jesus explaining how exactly he relates to the father these things are are mysterious to us we know that we're supposed to believe it we know that somehow it's supposed to be important but we can't really make heads or tail of it and we can't really explain why it is that this even matters well, I can't pretend to be able to explain every nuance of Jesus' preexistence tonight, even if I possibly could do that ever, but certainly not in one little lesson this evening. But I do want us to at least see what Scripture claims about it and then talk about why a belief in his preexistence is important. Now, obviously, preexistence is not a term that's ever used in Scripture. You're not going to flip through your concordance and find where that's used in an English translation. This is a concept to describe the, the fact, the idea, that Christ existed before the incarnation. That is, before the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was born, the Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, whatever you want to call him, however you want to differentiate that, he already existed. There are several passages in Scripture that indicate Christ did already exist before he took on human form. We've already seen some of this in our lessons over the last couple of weeks. We think to John chapter 1, for instance. John tells us that the Word became flesh, obviously indicating that that word was already 
in existence, and then he took on that human form. Of course, that's made even more emphatic in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, etc. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But one important line of evidence that that's reminiscent of, we have a number of statements about the Christ's heavenly origin that points to the fact that he was already in existence before he took on human form. Uh, just to give you some examples of this, John chapter 3 and verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him sending him who already existed into the world. Verse 31 of that same chapter, John chapter 3, is more specific. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus himself states just a few chapters later in John's gospel, chapter 6, verse 38, for I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. There are too many scriptures to even list that talk about Jesus' heavenly origin. This is just a, a sampling of them. If you're interested in that, I encourage you to take a concordance, read up on that, or these days you can just Google that sort of thing, look it up in a, one of these Bible study tools online. A number of them are found in John's gospel. Just read through John's gospel and see how many times Jesus' heavenly origin is mentioned. And that's backed up by statements we have in scripture attesting to his works before the incarnation. So, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says that he was before all things, talking there about his creation of the world, the role that he played there. He existed before all of those things. And, of course, we know, again, from John chapter 1, that all things were made by him or through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. We could multiply the evidence along this line, but the point is, the New Testament is clear. Christ already existed before the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was born. But we can go further than that based on Scripture. We can say more about him than just the fact that he already existed. To say Jesus is preexistent is not the same thing as to say that he's eternal, right? Do you follow me there? That is, he could have existed before he was born in this earth and still been someone or being of some description who was created by God. Some in church history have accepted this idea of Christ's preexistence, but they've rejected the idea of his eternality, that he had no beginning. But you see, rejecting Jesus as eternal is the same thing as rejecting his deity. It's the same thing as saying that he's not divine. If Jesus is simply the first created being who then created everything else, well then quite simply, he's not God. But on the other hand, if he's eternal, that means he doesn't depend on anyone or anything else for his existence. He is self-existent. He is uncaused, which is the same thing as to say 
he is God. So you see why this idea of Jesus' eternality is distinguished from his preexistence is important. And scripture has ample evidence for his eternity too. The Old Testament prophets, looking forward to Messiah coming, spoke about him in terms like that. So, for instance, the prophet Micah, in predicting that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, a passage that we're probably familiar with, he said his coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That from ancient days can also be translated, some English versions have it, from everlasting from eternity. There's no stronger way in Hebrew to make a statement about indefinite duration or infinite duration than that. Micah's saying that he always was from eternity. Isaiah says in a passage that we also know, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, etc. Everlasting Father. That's one of the terms applied to the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. Of course, here again, the New Testament is even more emphatic about this eternal nature of Christ. We really don't need to go beyond the passages that we've already looked at over the last couple of weeks for those of us who've been here. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed from the beginning. There never was a time when he was not. Or the statement Jesus made to some of his enemies that we looked at last week, before Abraham was, I am. That's a statement there of self-existence that he has always been. So in other words, we can establish pretty clearly, I think, that Scripture teaches this. Christ was preexistent. More than that, Christ is eternal. And that is to say, he is himself God. Now maybe you're thinking at this point, okay, I'll buy that, that that's what the Bible teaches. So what? Why does that matter? Why do we have a, a lesson even covering this in this book? Let's answer that with a little story from church history. From the very beginning, from the New Testament, just as we've seen, Christians thought of Jesus as God. They thought of him as divine. But how do we make sense, on the one hand, of one God, which, of course, all Christians believe, but on the other hand, make room for the Son, let alone the, the Holy Spirit, which is just another ball of wax altogether that we're not even going to get into tonight. How do we reconcile this? Well, the earliest Christians were content to leave that as a mystery. I suppose they mumbled through it just like that uh, seminary student that we mentioned. But in the second, the third, the fourth century, the increasing influence of Greek philosophy on the church, the increasing uh, apologies that were written defenses of Christianity uh, to pagans, uh, all of these started to raise questions about how we're going to explain this. And there were a number of solutions that were proposed to try to account for all of this, for, for Christ's divine nature, but 
uh, they all proved unsatisfactory for a variety of reasons. And if we wanted to, I, I think that's pretty interesting stuff. We can go into that tonight, but don't worry. We're going to keep it uh, shorter. We won't go with a long version of the history for, for time's sake tonight. But the most contentious view of trying to explain Jesus' divine nature was promulgated by a fellow named Arius. Arius was a popular preacher in Alexandria, and he came into conflict with the bishop there, a fellow named Alexander, about the year 318. There was a big uh, conference there, a group, a, a gathering of preachers, of church leaders, clergy, and the question was asked, is the Son eternal as is the Father? Alexander, the bishop, said yes. Arius said no. Now, it's important to notice what he was not saying. There was agreement on Christ's preexistence. Everybody agreed on that, but there was not agreement on whether or not he was eternal. Arius put it this way, there was when Christ was not. So what he argued was that Jesus wasn't of the same substance of the Father, rather he was created. He was the first created being. He participated in the Godhead somehow, but he still was created, the highest of God's creation. Now, that teaching caught on because it had appealed to former pagans. This was a time when the church had just come into acceptance. It had just come out of persecution. Uh, there in 318, there was a pretty new emperor, Constantine. You've probably heard of him. Constantine was the first Roman emperor to legalize Christianity. And so it had come out of the, the shadows now more into acceptance and this was an idea that appealed to pagans because it, it had some commonalities with pagan religions. It made things easy to understand. This idea of, of one God, but Father, Son, Spirit, this is, is hard to wrap your head around. But on the other hand, if we think of Jesus as sort of a, a divine hero, someone who's higher than a man, but not quite a God in between, you know, a, a demigod, a, a Hercules-type figure, well, we can get on board with that. That makes sense. So this became popular. And Arius became all the more popular because he was not only a really skilled preacher, but he was a PR genius. He was a man ahead of his time. He put his ideas into jingles. And I'm not making that up. He set his teachings to tunes, just like you'd find on commercials so that uh, workers would know them, so that school children would know them. And I actually have uh, one of them here, uh, one of these little jingles that Arians would use to sing. Of course, the tune's lost to history, so I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> the uncreated God has made the sun, a beginning of things created, and by adoption has God made the sun into an advancement of himself. Yet the sun's substance is removed from the substance of the Father. The Son is not equal to the Father, nor does he share the same substance. God is the all-wise Father, and the Son is the teacher of his mysteries. The members of the Holy Trinity share unequal glories. Now, I guess that was more catchy in Greek or something, or maybe it had a really great tune because that doesn't sound all that appealing to me. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a mouthful. But in its day, that caught on like 
wildfire. Arius's supporters were going around singing those little ditties like that. And all of this caused such contention that finally a, a synod was called in Alexandria in 320 where the churchmen who dissembled there condemned Arius's teaching. They excommunicated him. But then he turned to a, a friend of his, a bishop, Eusebius of Nicomedia, who also happened to be a kinsman of the emperor. He got some support there. And what this shaped up as is a, a conflict between really the, the two most powerful churches in the eastern Mediterranean, Nicomedia, which was the political capital at the time. Constantine had moved it from Rome, but he hadn't built Constantinople yet. It was nearby in Nicomedia. And Alexandria, which was the intellectual capital of the Eastern Empire. So there's all this uh, tension, this religious dispute is boiling over into political turmoil. And in the meantime, Arius came back to Alexandria where literally riots erupted in the streets over this. If we see some of the, the protest sometimes uh, on our televisions, that's what was going on here. You literally had uh, people carrying around placards uh, with sayings like there was when he was not talking about Christ, uh, singing these jingles that we're talking about. This is an explosive situation. And the Emperor Constantine realized that before long this was going to threaten the unity of the empire because Constantine had intended to use Christianity like emperor worship was used in the early days of the empire. That is, this was going to be a unifying force. People were going to be Christians and that was going to keep the empire glued together. So in 325, he called for a council to meet at Nicaea. You've probably heard of this council of Nicaea, a smaller city near Nicomedia. Between 250 and 300 bishops responded, and the result of their deliberations there had a far-reaching effect. Some of the bishops there who supported Arius, they tried to just go and you know, claim an early victory by stating their case out there outright up front, but the council was so upset because most didn't agree with that Arian view that Christ was created that they rejected them right out. See, the problem is, on the face of it, all of these bishops, all Christians, worshipped Jesus. They regarded him as God. To emphasize that he was of some sort of different stuff than the Father, that's just a, a non-starter. How can we be worshipping a, a being who's not really God? So the overwhelming majority was against Arius, but the harder part was to get them to agree on actually how to define who Christ was. It's always a lot easier to get people to agree on what they disagree about than it is to get them to unite on something in common. Well, finally, they adopted a, a statement that all but two bishops signed, and this is where the uh, Nicene Creed emerges from. Christ was, quote, true God, from true God. So in other words, Jesus was God in the same sense that the Father was. They had different tasks, they had different relationships with each other, but they were both still equally God. Christ is of one substance, also translated as consubstantial. Um, <coughs> the Greek term here is homoousios, uh, with 
the Father. That comes from homo, which means same, and usia, which means substance. So one substance. That was controversial because this was a philosophical term. This wasn't a term that came out of Scripture. And I only mention that word because there was another faction that preferred a different term, homoousios, one letter difference, because that means not the same, it means similar substance, which uh, the historian Edward Gibbon uh, joked that all of this controversy was over a diphthong, just that one letter's difference here, but and this is the sort of thing they debated about. In the end, they accepted this formula of the same substance because it reinforced unequivocally that Christ was God. It also said Christ was begotten, not made. That is, Jesus was not formed. He was not created in the same sense that other things were created, however we might define begotten. And then finally, that he became human, quote, for us men and for our salvation. And that's really the key matter. Why does all of this arguing matter? What was at stake here? What was this dispute about? And why have I gone into this story to try to explain why pre-existence eternality is significant? If Christ, for one thing, was only a creature, then he could not have brought salvation. That's one reason why this is important. Humanity can't pull itself up to God. God alone could reach down and lift us up to him. That's why this debate gripped so many people, because if Christ is just another created being, then he couldn't possibly have brought about the deliverance that we need. But secondly, we should understand this. Arius proposed a God that was high above human frailty, someone who was completely and totally removed from humanity, distant from the suffering of his people. And it's no wonder that a lot of the emperors ended up supporting that Arian view because that makes God sound a lot like the emperor. When you're totally different, removed, separated from those you're ruling over. But the opposite view, the view that the church as a whole embraced, declared that the eternal, supreme God was present in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Christians proclaimed, in fact, that God was best known in him. And that's precisely what Paul is saying in our text in Philippians chapter 2, where he urges us to have the mind among ourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he existed in this same state as God. Didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's the point. That pre-existent, eternal Son of God, God himself, took on human form. He lived just like we do. He experienced temptations like we do. He suffered like we do. And in fact, even beyond what we can imagine, 
ultimately humbling himself to the point of death, even that most painful, most shameful, humiliating death on the cross. He did all that for us. God himself did that for us. That's why this is important. That's what's at stake when we talk about the preexistence, the eternality of Jesus. That God himself took on flesh and acted on our behalf. If you're here this evening and you haven't availed yourself of what God did in Christ in dying on the cross for your sins, if you have sin in your life that you need to repent of so that you can be back in a right relationship with God, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.